Hey, everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast, where we are learning to invest like Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, and other fantastic people who are making a lot of money as investors and doing it in a way that actually is easier to do if you are an amateur investor than it is to do if you're a professional with a Harvard degree. <laughs> I'm going to say that. And this is Danielle, but my daughter, by the way. But if you that is that. not. The, you're just saying that because a professional invests a lot more money than a private investor. And because a professional has been trained improperly. Almost <laughs> 100% of the time. There are exceptions. Yes. But I mean, as recently as last year, um, there's a guy named Bruce Greenwald who's kind of the professor emeritus of value investing, which is the style of investing that we would say broadly we fit into, um, where we try to find wonderful, well, we try to find things that are on sale, right? That's value investing. Right. We try to find wonderful things that are on sale. That is a subset of value investing. And Bruce invited Lee Lu, who is in our subset, who I've talked about, to come to his class and speak about value investing. And basically, these are second-year students at Columbia University planning on going to Wall Street, and none of them really had a clue about what he was talking about after studying this thing. Because they're predominantly just efficient market theory investors. And so I think it's a huge disadvantage to go to an Ivy League. I'm, I'm hoping our kid doesn't go. I hope Hunter's interested in this kind of stuff, and I, don't, I hope he doesn't go. I hope he stays okay. out of the Ivy League. That's a, that's a lot to unpack right there. <laughs> well, you went, <laughs> you went big time into that world of, of the East Coast elite schools. and. You know, you fortunately, you didn't take a lot of finance classes, so they didn't corrupt your brain, which I'm really happy about. I don't know. It's just weird. You've got like a chip on your shoulder about it. What's the story I don't think there? so. I don't think it's a chip. I'm just calling, you know, a spade a spade, a heart a heart, a club a club. I don't think that I mean, learning, that's the way the cards are falling. I don't think that learning the way other people invest is a detriment. I think the problem is that people in business schools generally don't learn the Buffett way. And Buffett himself even deters people from learning the Buffett way. I mean, I don't really get it, but he seems to think that it's it's not accessible to most people. And I, again, I don't really get it. I don't know why he thinks that. But well, maybe I don't he, think he, I don't think he thinks that. I, I really? think that he and Charlie over the years have made it really clear that this is not something where 160 IQ is a required, you know, yeah, I didn't for say that. success. Well, then you you got to say that okay, most people have the intelligence to do it. Of course. Okay, so I what think is it most people can do accessible? it. I don't know why he thinks it's not accessible, but he constantly and we were talking about this a few episodes ago. He constantly is telling people to invest in index funds to just follow the market. I think that he thinks that if you can't put in the time to be as dedicated as he is, this is just my guess, that you won't be able to do it profitably. And I also think that that perspective comes from his pre-internet days when it took so much longer to research a company. I don't 
from from what little I know, <laughs> I think he does not use email. I'm not He's sure he still uses in a computer. The days, in other words. That's what I'm saying. Right. And so I think maybe he actually hasn't experienced how quickly we can get information and that it really takes a fraction of the time that it used to take him, probably. Um, I'm, I'm not saying we can be like Buffett level, but I think in my own experience, we can learn to do this stuff. Well, I, I think you're 100% right, of course, and this podcast is all about that. But I don't think Warren would say it's not accessible to most people. I think that he would agree that, you know, snowboarding is accessible to most people, but, you know, probably the majority of people don't do it because they're not attracted to it. It's not fun for them to be on a snowboard and fall down and land in the snow and get cold and wet. Mm-hmm. That That's just not what they would consider fun, whereas... You know, people who are avid snowboarders love doing that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it's a <laughs> it's a matter of sort of um, what's the right word Pro- proclivity or something. It's like what, yeah, what, maybe what maybe that's on? right. Yeah, and maybe he doesn't see that a lot of people are as interested as he is. I think honestly, I would say, I think he's a little bit dismayed. If I would say it, a little bit skeptical after having annual meetings with Berkshire. Um, investors for the last umpteen years, um, which is now up to like 30 or 40,000 people showing up, and then finding that the vast majority of them don't understand how he invests. Yeah, I bet you're exactly right about that. That would be utterly dismaying. it, It would be. After all these letters and all this work he puts into explaining what he's doing, after stating you know, at least Charlie's stating that this is not rocket science. You know, it's not about a big IQ. It's yep. following a few simple rules and being patient. And then he says to things like this in 2008, he says, I hope Coca-Cola and the rest of these stocks go down by 50%. And everyone in the audience is complaining that he said that. Yeah. Because yeah. they don't get it. Yeah. They just want him to make them money. And they don't understand the process that that's involved in that. And so I think with that, you would become skeptical that, I mean, these are fans and they don't get it. Yeah. What was that question that somebody asked when we were there last year? It was something like, where do you invest your personal money or, or, right. or what should a family office, what does your family office do? with its right. money. That, that was the question. What does your family office do? And everybody in the whole audience was just like, did that just get asked? Did that just take up my time at this Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting? We better explain why that was so shocking. Because they invest their own money for a living. <laughs> they don't have a separate <laughs> family office. It would be completely antithetical for everything they stand for to have a separate family office exactly. that invests their own personal money separately from Berkshire Hathaway. It's nuts. That was pretty crazy. Yeah. I mean, so, the, I mean, the bottom line is that I think for me, this is accessible to everybody, almost everybody, right? And then it's a question if you decide to try it out, it's a question of whether you are like me and you just like immediately go down the rabbit hole and stay there, <laughs> you know, just like, or if you're like soon me as I started and you find or it if you're like terribly you. torturous for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's torturous and and slogging through the muck, and then suddenly it starts to to catch on. You know? Yeah. Would you say Would you say you're you're kind of pretty well turned on about this? This is a, a fun thing for life. Oh yeah, like this is not going not going anywhere. I often 
have these weird days where I'm like too busy to read the news or, you know, read anything about companies or basically do any investing practice at all. And I'll sort of get to the end of the day and sit down with my phone and realize that I hadn't read anything that day. And I feel sad and I, I feel a bit bereft. And then I'll have this moment of like, what's wrong with me? Who am I? <laughs> Who have I <laughs> what become? have I done to myself? <laughs> I've become my father. It's so weird. Luke. Luke. <laughs> I don't know if you want to make that comparison. <laughs> Luke, the force is with you. <laughs> okay. You, you realize you're Darth Vader in this scenario. <laughs> no, I'm Obi-Wan. Oh, you're Obi-Wan. I'm confusing the metaphor, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's really <clears throat> it's really become a genuinely fantastic part of my day and my week and my life, especially the way that I look at companies around in my day, like in my daily life, I now see investing everywhere. And it's kind of like a new 3D glasses being on, like a new view through 3D glasses of instead of just sort of wandering about you know, in hindsight, I was kind of wandering about not connecting to all of the products and the services that I interact with daily. I did in a sense of like thinking about my conscious consumerism. You know, I did definitely think about where do I like what products do I want to buy from good companies, but I never connected it to investing money and to um, larger companies than just like the basic stuff that I would purchase as a consumer. And now as I go around I mean, I was talking to a friend the other day about this and and I said, you know, I, I was in a bar and I looked at the alcohol behind the bar, like the top shelf alcohol, and I realized those are owned by two different public companies. Right there in front of me at the cocktail bar as I'm hanging out, there is an investing lesson right there. And I can, because we live in 2018, I can pull out my phone right there, look up who owns Grey Goose, find out who owns Grey Goose, find out who owns Belvedere Vodka, and find out what's going on with them. I mean, right there, and it takes me about eight minutes. That's crazy, and I find it fascinating. So I told that to a friend the other day who is also um, somewhat of a newcomer to finance, and he said... He was just like cracking up and like nodding along. And then he said, I was walking down the street in New York and I looked at the manhole cover in front of me and I realized there's a stamp of a company on the manhole cover. And I started thinking, somebody makes that manhole cover. I want to know who it is. I mean, it's amazing. That's what happens. You get this sort of 3D vision. It's wild. And all of a sudden, all these things pop out of you that you don't notice before that. It's really, um, what I want to say is it's heartening, which is like a weird word, but that's what's coming to mind. It feels heartening. It feels like I'm connected in a different way. The, um, the experience that I have from Charlie and Warren and my teachers over the years has been just like that. And I would add one more thing, and that is that I'm seeing the these manhole covers, if you will, through a certain lens, right? Through a certain set of glasses that Warren and Charlie have 
have taught me to look through. And that, in other words, I'm not just looking at the manhole cover. I'm looking at the manhole cover because I realize that's one company making all these manhole covers. Right. Maybe they have a toll bridge moat. Right. And then right. I, I, look, I look at the guard, and that's why I'm interested, right? So it's not just a manhole cover. It's a, wow, these guys might have a lock on this thing. What an interesting company because there's always going to be manhole covers, yeah. right? Immediately you're thinking in terms of, could I understand the manhole cover business? Probably I could. Does it have an intrinsic characteristic that makes it durable? Wow, if they're the only guys yeah. doing this, yeah. And then uh, I got to find out who's running it and I got to see what the value is. But this may be something I should look at. Honey, I do that. All the time, and it really is thrilling to me. I got to tell you to to know that you're that you're doing this. It's so interesting to me, you know. Yeah. Like we were talking about um, Al- Alfia, right? That about the, what? Or, what is it called? Alfia, Alfia, Alfia. It's this cannabis company in Canada. I wasn't talking about that. Oh, I was talking about it with with uh, my analyst. I was thinking I discussed it with you. I mean, this is a big subject, right? Right now is Canadian cannabis companies. You just reminded me of this when you said that um, one of the liquor, that there were two public companies that owned the top shelf liquors and uh, liquor brands. And I was thinking, yeah, Constellation Brands, for example, which owns Coors, or not Coors, they own Molson and uh, Corona. So the big beer company, mm-hmm. Constellation. They just bought into a cannabis company in Canada with $5 billion, Hmm. right? And they're sort of picking those guys as being a future winner. And they have an option to buy another $5 billion and control the company. Well, one of the other biggest $1 billion of market cap value marijuana companies up there um, just got into the news for having their CEO buy, this is classic scam stuff. <laughs> what listen to this. They got they raised all this money for this company like worth a billion dollars in the market and then that company Alfia, I think that's the name of it, bought um businesses involved in the marijuana business around the world from another company. Okay? So for example, it paid 145 million dollars to buy this marijuana business down in Colombia from this other company. Okay. A a third party. Okay. Which turned out to be owned by the CEO of the public company. Oh. You with me so far? Like the CEO privately owned another company. Yes. And then his company that he works for bought his privately owned company from him. No, it bought something his privately owned company bought. Oh, okay. So like you know, if if his privately owned company bought a Ford truck, then now the public company bought the Ford truck from his private company. Okay. You with mm-hmm. me? Except it wasn't a Ford truck and it wasn't, you know, $70,000. It was a marijuana company in Colombia and it cost $145 million. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this hedge fund sent some guys down to look at these, these purchases and they went to Colombia and they found it was just a house. Oh, no. It was a house. Oh, yeah. And nobody was in it. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. That you could buy on the street in Colombia for a few thousand bucks. Yeah. Okay? 
and they paid $145 million to this guy. And he did it four different times. Four different times. So the stock has been, of course, dropping like a brick. And that, I mean, this is part of this process of looking into things that are popping up in front of your face, like manhole covers and and bottles of alcohol on the shelf. And the news report that, wow, here's a marijuana company where the guy's running a scam, you know? And you start to investigate these things within this box that Buffett and Munger put together. And it's real simple. You go, could I understand this company? Does it have a moat? Do I trust the management? And is it on sale? So here's an, this, this just one I'm randomly picking up here is a group that you can't trust the management. And you have to know that you can trust the management. So when you're starting to look at new things, you always have to look at, okay, who's running this thing? That's a critical component of what's going on out there. Who's running the manhole cover company? Who's running the waste products? Who's running the garbage company? Right? Yeah. <clears throat> I don't know, man. It just fascinates me as you get deeper and deeper into this. I totally agree with with all that. I do think that it's a little bit intimidating to think like, oh, if I'm interested in something, I have to go find out who the management is and learn all about it and find out who manhole cover competition is and all that. Like, I also think it's kind of okay to just sort of be interested and maybe you only track down some of those companies, you know? Yeah. Naughty. Sure. You're not going to be interested in everything. Yeah. I just want to say but that wanna, because I, I feel like it, 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 it can be very intimidating to have this sense of like, God, now I have to spend all my free time researching everything I look up. No, you don't have to spend all your free time researching everything you look up. Just the stuff that grabs your attention enough to where you, I like want to go even look it up. And then if I, quite frankly, if I lose interest after reading their website, that's it. I'm done. That goes in my too boring pile. So, so you got the one example here we're talking about today is a guy who's walking out on the street and sees manhole covers and goes, bang, this may be something I should look yeah. at. Um, where, you know, obviously manhole covers are part of his life, but not like, <laughs> you know, I prefer Belvedere vodka. <laughs> I prefer that manhole cover more than any other manhole cover. Right. Yeah. So it's a little more connected when we start doing things that we already are spending our money on. We're already making a vote. Right? right. So, you know, if I'm if I'm consuming beer and now I learn about the company that makes the beer that I like, and then this company starts to expand into marijuana, then you know what follows is a lot of unpredictable legal entanglements. <laughs> <laughs> What follows is I'm smoking a doobie <laughs> to test their product. Now, I, I mean, you know, it's so it's so interesting what what where this leads you. It really, really is. I mean, I, I love it. We were trying to we were just trying to buy a Jeep looking vehicle. Looks like a Jeep out of China through a website that's entirely in Chinese. There were, I mean, it's, we're just experimenting, you know, trying to understand this particular Chinese company better. Mm. And, you know, you just can't understand a business until you, you're connected with it in some way. You got to drink the booze, man. You got to smoke the dope. If you're going to own something, you've got to, as much as you can, at least at the level that I'm at, I mean... Yeah, well, that's the I, argument I really... for never touching non-consumer companies for most people. And... 
It is. You know, it feels a bit limiting, but then I also think, God, there's so many companies that are consumer companies that I interact with on a daily basis. Do I really need to branch out? I don't know if I really need to branch out. There's plenty right there. And realistically, honestly, there are a lot of companies that you interact with on a daily basis that are business to business, you know? Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, you could say it's consumer, but we're both talking into a microphone. I mean, somebody makes that thing, right? And that's, I guess that's consumer. It's consumer, but Um, yeah, no, I mean, you're right. Like there's, there's levels to things. And one thing we should talk about, dad, is sprouts. And the other one. <laughs> nice segue. <laughs> Speaking of things we purchased. Apropos of nothing. That was apropos of consumer <laughs> purchasing and interaction. Okay. okay, so back to the grocery industry that we are uh, a year ago decided was going to be a bit disrupted, more than a bit, by Amazon's purchase of Whole Foods. Um, Amazon has indeed disrupted Whole Foods pricing policies. They've dropped their price um, aggressively. They've also instituted a um, home uh, purchases and deliveries with Whole Foods. And and that seems to be going well in cities where they have that. Um, And so now the industry is responding, right? Um, And if they can, they're going to respond and and uh, continue to function in this industry that's being disrupted by Amazon. So we looked at a couple of companies. We looked at um, Kroger's, which is the largest retail grocery chain. Sort of like conventional grocery in the U.S. Yeah. Yep. And we found that they also are doing home delivery, but they're only doing it with canned goods. They don't do any any fresh things at all. Hmm. But that's probably coming. I mean, they're probably just working their way into it, right? And then they also diversified broadly across a lot of shopping items that are in Kroger stores um, that are not don't have, don't have much to do with food, frankly. So, you know, you can buy pet supplies, you can buy, you know the stuff that's in a grocery yeah. store. So um, Kroger's Kroger's trying to call itself a growth company now. Its stock dropped like a brick after the Amazon Whole Foods announcement, and then it shot all the way back up to where it was. So, if you were you know jumping on it. Um, back a year ago, you'd have done really well. Now the question is, where is it going to go and what's it worth? And I'll I'll tell you, I'm just going to jump in here that I ran some numbers on Kroger. And I mean, frankly, it's pretty nicely priced right now on a 10 cap basis, which we've talked about. Yeah, you said that last time. It was interesting. But then, of course, the question is, how much growth can we really expect from that company? Well, the real question is, actually, I would rephrase that a little bit. I'd say, will it be a bigger company in 10 years or is this Amazon disruption going to cause it to lose its market, to shrink down in size, to re-specialize? I mean, what's going to make Kroger bigger in 10 years, particularly when you, you see the advent of some of these stores that are competing with sort of Sam's club kinds of stuff like Alfie coming over from Germany. Those guys are here now in the grocery store space where you just, they're cutting open boxes and putting them on the shelf like Costco. What's it called? A-L-D-I? Not Alfie. (laughs) Not Alfie. That was a movie. All right. Aldi. Right. Um, (laughs) Danielle had this look on her face like, what? Yeah, Aldi's (laughs) really big in Europe. But how is that different from what I said? I just want to understand. What I said is, how much growth can we really expect in the next 10 years? And you said, the question is really, and now I forgot exactly how you rephrased it. Oh, well, you, you said it just a little differently. I'm... You saying how much growth can we expect? And I'm saying, 
is, is it going to grow at is all? Is it going to grow? Is at really all? my question. Oh, I see. Which so you're a, you're thinking like, like I'm implying you, that it will grow, but the question is how much, and you're saying it might not grow at all. Yeah, and I I think it's not invalid to just say how much growth will it have, but that implies a growth rate, and growth rates are dangerous. Growth rates imply a level of uh, of uh, a scale that may not be easy to achieve. Like we really understand it deeply enough that we know where things are going to be in 10 years uh, at based on some number. Oh, it's literally 7% per year doubling in the next 10 years one time, right? right. Well, I don't know that. Nobody knows that. It's an impossible thing to know. So I much prefer our 10 cap method of value, which just says, well, will it grow at all? And if it will, and I buy it at a good price, then I'm not going to lose money on this deal. And that's the absolute essence, honey, of what we try to do. We try to make sure we're not going to lose money on this deal. And frankly, I think in your lifetime, if you go buy 20 companies focusing entirely on not losing money on the, the purchase, um, I think you're going to get so rich. So are you saying that if Kroger doesn't grow at all, stays exactly the same size and you buy it for the price it's at right now, which you said was below a 10 cap price. You would still make money somehow magically. No, no. What I said is uh, what we really want to know is not so uh, granular as how much will it grow? What we really want to know is, will it grow at all? Some number. Oh, I got that's you. positive. Okay. okay. See yeah, the difference? Yeah. It's it's a subtle difference, but it's very, very big difference in the way you think about the world of investing. Because if you're thinking in the way Wall Street does, which is in terms of how fast will it grow? In other words, what, what's my growth rate that I'm going to put on this? And therefore, what's it worth? Um, you are stepping into like making up numbers that you can't possibly yeah. know for most companies, right? I just... But what we... Go ahead. Oh, well, it's kind of an aside. So go ahead. All right. Well, what we can know is we can, with a pretty high degree of certainty, if we're careful, is that this company will be bigger in the future. It'll be more productive in the future based on where it's at today. And that's enough. That's enough if we buy it at the right mm -hmm. price. And what that means is the focus here isn't on, it, it, this is really hard for people to get, but it's so important. The focus isn't on how much money I'm going to make. Okay. When we're just saying, I think it'll be bigger. I could be right. And it could be a little bigger and that's all in 10 years, in which case I'm not going to make much money on this investment, if any at all. But what my focus is, is that I'm not going to lose any money on this investment mm -hmm. if I buy mm -hmm. it right. And that's a giant difference. So that's why Monesh Prabhai, who is a fabulous investor, has said many times that his basic thought about investing is, I want to buy a free lottery ticket. I want to have something which I can get my money back on, or right for which I paid nothing, which is essentially what you're saying if you you buy it and you get your money back later. I want to I want that sort of a deal on a lottery ticket. I want to be able to buy it today, get my money back later, and if I hit the lottery, I'm going to make a lot yeah. of money. And what that says is that the level of uncertainty out there about the future is quite enormous. 
That's so, it's like know. really sinking in. I'm really glad that you're saying all this because you've said it a lot of times, but it's just interesting how you, it hits you differently at different times and it's really sinking in. So. Yeah, it's, it's really important yeah. to think that the reason we call this rule number one investing is because rule number one, according to Warren Buffett, is don't lose money. And rule number two is don't forget rule number one. So here's Buffett sort of making a, a little joke about what is absolutely dead serious, the fundamentally best way to invest on the planet. And that is to quit thinking about how much money I'm going to make and start thinking about, I'm going to do only those investments where I am highly certain I'm not going to lose mm -hmm. any money. And then let the chips fall where they will. And what Warren has said over and over again is that if you are so serious about this that you only allow yourself 20 companies in your lifetime that you can buy, and it's as if you have a punch card, you buy Whole Foods, there's one punch. You buy Chipotle, there's another punch. You got 18 to go in your life, okay? And if you do that, then, and you do that with this concept that I'm going to buy those things I won't lose money on that are bound to be more productive and I'm buying them at a 10 cap or on sale, then what's going to happen, he said, is very likely four or five of them will take off and do really well. And if the rest of them don't do anything, it doesn't matter as long as you get your money back. And those four or five will make you very rich. So I just started this book by Howard Marks, who's a famous value style investor. He runs Oak Tree Capital and he's written a bunch of books. And his most recent one is on market cycles, which I picked up because I don't understand that at all. And it's, I've only just started it, but it's really interesting. And one of the things he says in the very beginning is that many things can happen, but only one will. Many <laughs> things can happen, but only one will. And we, well said, and Howard. we do not know what that one is. Straight up, there he says, go. we cannot predict what that one thing that will happen will be. So therefore, yeah. the focus for an investor is on the probability of the many things that can happen and oh, in our confidence like in those probabilities. I mean, it's such, like it's such a genius message and I'm, it's, I've been mulling it over. And that's essentially I, what you're talking about here. He's talking about market cycles, yes. but what you're talking about is pricing and in yes. in all of those scenarios, we've chosen a company that is wonderful, that we trust, that we understand, that has a moat, like given, done, we get those things. And then you buy it at a price that ensures that regardless of the many things that happen, we know that we've chosen the probability that we are highly confident in that we will not lose money. Oh, I so love that I know. quote. This is great. Give, give us the name of Howard's book. Oh my gosh, I don't have it right have in it front there? of me. Um, I don't know what it's called. It's called something like Market Cycles. Let me Google it. Hold on. We're Googling it. It just came out. I really out. like this guy. I found it at the front of a bookstore. Mastering the Market I, Cycle. There you go. There you go. Mastering the Market Cycle. Getting the get odds it. on like, your I side. Like that. He's a really good writer, and he writes a regular, um, it's sort of a shareholder letter, essentially, but he calls it a memo. And he, yeah. 
um, even at the beginning of this book, he says, I've actually pulled from a lot of my memos because I've been sort of working on this topic for a long time. And so, you know, forgive any <laughs> duplication. Um, and and, and he, he does that because his memos are so well written and thought out. So I also highly recommend those, which are on his website under Oak Tree. Totally great. I, I completely agree. Um, I, I love reading this guy. And I have actually bought into his management company, Oak Tree Capital, when it uh, shortly after it went public. He's one of the guys. Um, I don't own it anymore, though. Just heads up. I didn't even um, know that. He's it one was of the guys. Who, I didn't even know that. Yeah, it's public. Um, he's one of the the few people who is an expert on the planet in buying distressed corporate debt. Really. Which means he can look at a company and say. The market is mispricing your hmm. bonds. Um, you're not going to go broke. The bonds are not going to be hmm. under pressure. And down the road, I'm going to get paid off enormously, either in a, a really hyped up interest rate, right? Because I bought them at a discount, or somebody's going to buy the bonds from me at a mm -hmm. big profit. And he's done extremely well, and he will continue to do extremely well. He's a very thoughtful superstar investor in the rule one in the rule one mode. Uh, I'm really glad you're reading them, and I'll, I'll grab that book. Well, then we can discuss so, it on the um, podcast after we've both read it. Yeah, we should. Um, so let's just so wrap let me, up let me, our uh, grocery say, we thing. Didn't quite, <laughs> we didn't quite make it through the whole grocery <laughs> thing, but except just to say that Kroger is responding aggressively to the challenge of Amazon, which is great. And their CEO seems real upbeat about it. And then if you're looking at that, you have to decide, how much do I trust this person that what he's saying is what he's doing, right? Because you can get hyped up stuff and maybe he's a great salesman and isn't, doesn't even know if he can pull this off. Um, how much do I understand what they're trying to do? If they're going to try to become something then Kroger's grocery store, how do I know that they're going to make that transition, which would be a big red flag risk? Um, and so how do I know for sure where they're going to be in 10 years? How do I, what's my level of confidence that these guys are going to be cranking along just fine in 10 years after I've seen companies as big as Albertsons go into bankruptcy and wipe yeah, out their shareholders. Yeah. So the answer would be, I'm a little and, leery there. And, unless... Yeah. And to look at the other um, players in that world, Target is huge and Walmart is huge. Um, Costco in, is Obviously huge. for Target and Walmart right and on. more than just grocery for sure. Um, right. Costco's got its own thing going on with their business model being totally different. Um, as a bulk purveyor of groceries. And then Sprouts, I just want to mention, which is, you know, much smaller than those ones, but Sprouts is the most similar to what Whole Foods was. And their CEO just out of the blue quit, which is really strange. Yeah, with no successive seat, no successor in mind. Like the board, you can just see like, you just quit? Yeah. What? And the, he's like a young guy. Uh, he was supposed to be leading the company for the future. And he just out of the blue quit. So we don't know anything about it. We don't know if he hopefully not is ill or has a family situation. We don't, we have no idea. Nobody knows. He hasn't announced it. So yeah, we hope, we hope, we hope he's not quitting for yeah. negative reasons, um, either personal for his sake or because there's something going on with the business that I, you know, it's the it's kind of thing to, that gives you a little like, really, <laughs> whoops, right? So that's a, more than a little for me. It's like a big red flag. Um, because remember, we're only looking at four things. Can I understand the business? Does it have a moat? Who's the CEO? 
And is it on sale? So of the three things that we use to look at whether the business is wonderful enough for us to buy, the CEO is one third of it and actually probably more. I don't know where you, you put the most emphasis. They're all equally important. But man, having the CEO up and leave, that's scary. It's, it's a bit, it's a bit um, odd. So right away, it's red flag. Odd. Yeah. And, a, and of course, the stock dropped like a brick um, on yeah. that news. So can Sprouts compete in a world of Amazon Whole Foods? And 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 what that boils down to, same thing with Kroger. Can they compete in a world of Target and Walmart, uh, big box food? Yeah, I don't know. And the answer is, what's here's the what's, moat? What's here's the intrinsic characteristic that protects Target them? Target and Walmart are now using Google for their online sales. So they have gone away from Amazon and have chosen the competitor. And they're like all in with Google. So and apparently they've been doing very well with their online sales since getting Google's alg algorithms involved. So that's going to be its own kind of interesting, like behemoth against behemoth fight online. And 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 this whole well, combo a, of like how we're going to end up buying things online slash in person, because we're definitely always going to have some sort of local shops where you can walk in and buy things. It'll just be done differently. And it's going to be really interesting to see how they work that out. Oh, I mean, just starting to think about how disruptive online purchases would be with delivery that day. Oh my gosh. I mean, we're out here in the sticks, so we don't have any of this, but my friends in LA yeah. already do. And it's, it's enormously disruptive. Disruptive. Like, like they don't go to the retail stores anymore. They don't go as much as yeah. they used to, number one. And number two, um, there's a bit of a switch mode going on there. If you think about it, if you end up with a supplier that's really good at delivering really high quality fresh food, I mean, think, right? You I, uh, Give me some lettuce. Well, up till now for the last million years, we've gone in and picked the lettuce ourselves. I want that but, one, I mean, not that I get one. groceries delivered here in Zurich and... It's great. I <laughs> I almost never go to the grocery store anymore. I just have it delivered and they're pretty good at picking the produce. Yes, that is the one thing. Sometimes it's not what I necessarily would have chosen. But in exchange for the convenience of having groceries delivered to my house that I don't have to lug home because I live in a city and I have to walk and it's heavy, it's great. Yeah. This is going to be hugely disruptive. Um, I, so if you're thinking about stepping into this industry, these companies start to look like they're on sale. Please remember, what is the moat? What is the intrinsic characteristic that protects this company from competition and protects their margins? And you take a look at the margins of these companies and you'll see them having margin trouble. Whole Foods was having margin trouble. That's why they went to Amazon. Here comes Kroger with, geez, 3% margins or something, just really narrow, not much profit margin at all, which indicates a company that doesn't have mm. a moat. So be very careful here, you guys, when you're looking at this, use it as a great example of a disrupted industry where what happens in 10 years is really pretty much too vague to decide. Yeah, anyway. I hear you. So we're going into the holidays here, Dad. We're going to be back next week with... A holiday message where basically let's talk to each other about being grateful and holidays. And Absolutely. we'll wish you all a happy Absolutely. holiday and prep things a little bit. And then in the beginning of the new year, I think it's on January 8th, but I could be wrong. 
Um, whatever that first back to work Tuesday is, we'll be back with a new year 2019. Here's what's going on episode. <laughs> so look forward to that. Oh, for sure. <laughs> All right, sweetheart. I love you. Time to go All play, right. everybody. Thanks, everybody. Have a great Bye. holiday. Bye. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information, show notes, and more episodes, visit us at investedpodcast.com. There's a special offer waiting for podcast listeners to attend my three-day investing workshop absolutely free. So just head to investedpodcast.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it. 